Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, May 27th. In today's news, the health department watchdog purged by President Trump is pursuing 14 investigations of his botched response to the coronavirus. A third of Americans are showing signs of clinical anxiety and depression amid the contagion. And four Minneapolis police officers are fired after a black man dies in their custody. But first, the big idea. The drug that buoyed expectations for a coronavirus treatment and drew international attention for Gilead Sciences, remdesivir, started as a reject and also ran in the search for antiviral drugs. Its path to relevance didn't begin until Robert Jordan plucked it from mothballs. A Gilead scientist at the time, Robert convinced his company seven years ago to let him assemble a library of 1,000 cast-off molecules in a search for medicines to treat emerging viruses. Many viral illnesses threaten human health, but don't attract very much commercial interest because they lack the potential for huge drug sales. To make progress, Gilead needed help from U.S. taxpayers. Lots of help. Three federal health agencies were deeply involved in remdesivir's development every step of the way, providing tens of millions of dollars of government research support. Now, that big government role has set up a political showdown over pricing and access. Despite the heavy subsidies, federal agencies have not asserted patent rights to Gilead's drug, potentially a blockbuster therapy that's now worth several billion dollars. That means Gilead will have few constraints other than political pressure when it sets a price in coming weeks. Critics are urging the Trump administration to take a more aggressive approach. An HIV prevention advocacy group working with New York University Law School released an analysis yesterday that said the government, because it helped cull the drug from hundreds of compounds, probably has a legal right to claim that it co-invented remdesivir. It contends that government scientists should have been listed as co-inventors on remdesivir patents because of their key contributions. It says the Trump administration should be leveraging the government's involvement to ensure that the United States and other countries can get access at an affordable cost. Two other nonprofit watchdog groups, Knowledge Ecology International and Public Citizen, also released documentation showing the large taxpayer-funded contributions toward the drug. Public Citizen estimates that U.S. government investment in remdesivir is a minimum of $70 million. Gilead has acknowledged the large role of government agencies in remdesivir's development, but says the original compound was discovered by Gilead researchers years earlier, and therefore the government has no potential patent rights to the drug. The story of the creation of remdesivir shows Gilead would not be commercializing the drug if it were not for the extensive involvement of government scientists and agencies who get paid by you, the taxpayer. The industry-government partnership crossed the finish line this month when the FDA issued an emergency use authorization clearing remdesivir to treat hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Screening a huge number of chemicals for effective drugs is arduous work and often fails to produce a winner. In remdesivir's case, government researchers narrowed the search from 1,000 compounds to the chemical that would become remdesivir. Then it was government scientists who confirmed its potency in laboratory tests. It was government scientists who tested the drug in monkeys. And finally, it was government scientists who sponsored a 
pivotal clinical trial in humans. Robert, who I mentioned at the top, sent Gilead's screening library to the CDC in Atlanta and to Fort Detrick in Frederick, Maryland, home of the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. Scientists at both federal facilities study dangerous viruses in high-security biocontainment labs, which are very expensive. The NIH and academic labs in Tennessee and North Carolina that receive NIH grants also played key roles studying the drug in mice. An independent organization that measures the cost-effectiveness of drugs said Gilead could be justified in charging up to $4,500 for a 10-day course of treatment for a single coronavirus patient. But advocates cited another study by academic researchers on what it costs to actually make the drug. They say Gilead could break even by charging just $1 per dose. The Department of Health and Human Services, in response to our emailed questions, says it's too early to discuss pricing, but noted that government has reimbursed hospitals and other providers for the cost of testing and treating people with no health insurance who need remdesivir. In other words, the government subsidized the development of the drug and is now paying Gilead for people to be able to use it. Gilead claims that it's donating the first one and a half million doses to governments worldwide, which it says is enough for 140,000 patients to get treated through the end of May. More than half of that was targeted for U.S. patients. This drug is given intravenously in the hospital for five to 10 days. Gilead says it's investigating ways of making the drug in pill form, which would dramatically increase its use and sales, especially if the coronavirus lasts for years in the human population before we get an effective vaccine. Because Gilead tackles viral targets, it has a long history of working closely with the CDC and the NIH and other agencies to develop drugs that other companies have shunned especially for HIV and hepatitis C. But Gilead's pricing and intellectual property practices also have a long history of public and congressional criticism for price gouging. The company received a rash of negative publicity for pricing its hepatitis C drug, Sivaldi, at $84,000 for a 12-week course of treatment in 2013. Last year, after a story in the Washington Post, the Justice Department filed a lawsuit to enforce a government patent on the HIV prevention drug Truvada, which is for pre-exposure prophylaxis, after Gilead refused to recognize the legitimacy of the government's patent. As that court fight continues to be waged, Gilead continues to charge consumers more than $20,000 for Truvada. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, the chief watchdog for the Department of Health and Human Services, who is being replaced as part of Trump's purge of inspectors general, testified before the House Oversight Committee yesterday that she and her colleagues are pursuing 14 additional reviews of the Trump administration's response to the pandemic, which might explain why she got pushed out. Christy Grimm, HHS's principal deputy inspector general spoke out for the first time since she was excoriated publicly by the president for a report that she wrote, which found severe shortages earlier this spring of critical personal protective equipment that hospitals needed. Other inquiries that are ongoing are exploring the operation of the strategic national stockpile of emergency supplies, the development and distribution of tests by the CDC, and the process by which the FDA approved tests developed by outside laboratories. They're also delving into unaddressed safety issues in nursing homes, the role of the HHS agency that runs Medicare and Medicaid, specifically its controversial leader, Seema Verma, and other 
work on inadequate federal support for hospital systems. A career employee with the HHS Inspector General's Office for more than two decades, Grimm said that freedom from political intrusion is a key safeguard for the programs that she works on. Her pending replacement makes her one of five inspectors general that the president has deposed since early last month. The others watched over the intelligence community, as well as the departments of defense, transportation, and state. Number two, a third of our fellow Americans are showing signs of clinical anxiety or depression amid the pandemic. This is according to a major new national survey by the Census Bureau. When asked questions normally used to screen patients for mental health challenges, 24% showed clinically significant symptoms of major depressive disorders, and 30% showed symptoms of generalized anxiety disorders. The findings suggest a huge jump from before the contagion. For example, on one question about depressed mood, the percentage reporting such symptoms was double that found in a 2014 national survey. New York, which has had the worst coronavirus outbreak in the country, ranked 12th nationwide in terms of the share of adults showing symptoms. Nearly half of Mississippians screened positive for anxiety or depression, a staggering number. By contrast, in Iowa, just over a quarter screened positive. Rates of anxiety and depression are far higher among younger adults, women, and the poor. The worst scores in young adults are especially notable and concerning given that the virus has been far more likely to kill the elderly or leave them critically ill. The results reflect a deepening of existing trends, including rising depression, stress, and suicide among young adults. Throughout this crisis, lower-income folks have struggled the most with unemployment, food scarcity, and low-wage jobs that don't allow them to work from home and that offer few financial or physical protections. This is a remarkable juxtaposition. Asked how often they worry uncontrollably. Over the past week, 60% of those who make $150,000 or more a year said they didn't struggle at all. But among people making less than $25,000 a year, only 32% said they did not struggle at all over the previous week with uncontrollable worry. And 23% said they worry uncontrollably every single day. If you're suffering from crippling anxiety, you're obviously not alone. There's absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. Please seek help. Number three, a video from Minneapolis shows George Floyd, an African-American man, dying while a white officer kneels on his neck and the man pleads, quote, I can't breathe. This has prompted massive street protests in the Twin Cities, and sparked an FBI investigation. Last night, the Minneapolis Police Department fired the officer as well as three others who were at the scene. A visibly shaken mayor, Jacob Frey, said, quote, being black in America should not be a death sentence. As protesters confronted police in riot gear last night, they responded with tear gas. With coronavirus cases on the rise and the city almost out of ICU beds, Minneapolis remains under a safer-at-home order, but city officials decided not to try to stop protesters from gathering to speak out and express their anger at Floyd's death. At the protest, many wore masks, but there was little effort made to socially distance. Anita Murray joined the protest with her six-year-old daughter. Anita, who's Mexican-American, said she felt it was important to bring her daughter 
to teach her a lesson about what she described as, quote, the fundamental unfairness of the world. Anita said she hopes her daughter will always remember watching the clash between the protesters and the police. It's scary to come down here in the middle of the pandemic, she explained. But she added, quote, how could any of us stay away? It's quite a lesson to teach any six-year-old, because the world, of course, does not need to be unfair in that particular way. As Hubert Humphrey, who was mayor of Minneapolis in the 1940s, once put it, the moral test of government is how that government treats those who are in the dawn of life, the children, those who are in the twilight of life, the elderly, and those who are in the shadows of life, the sick, the needy, the handicapped, and racial minorities. On another dark day in America, as our official death toll from the coronavirus inches closer to 100,000, let me close with some perspective. Being stuck at home may be getting old if you're stuck at home, but at least you're not trapped in a haunted castle surrounded by wolves. Yes, a Bolivian orchestra group has been stranded for 73 days now at the Rheinsberg Palace in Germany. The palace once housed royals and aristocrats, and it's located about an hour and a half outside Berlin. The Bolivian group's tour collapsed as dates were canceled, and then when they tried to return home, they were unable to leave Germany because of border closures. Due to social distancing restrictions, local press reports say that the performers have not been allowed to leave the palace grounds, and they are forbidden from hiking around the surrounding woodland areas because apparently they're inhabited by 23 different packs of vicious wolves. We're a little unclear on how the orchestra got to the castle, but one of the Bolivians is quoted in the Spanish-language press saying their bus broke down on the motorway. Regardless, if this doesn't sound like the plot of a Wes Anderson movie, I'm not sure what does. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, May 27th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.